0: From the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra.
1: And I'm Rachel Hagemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement.
0: Welcome to Season 3 of our podcast. We are so glad you could join us.
1: This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics.
0: Today, we are joined by three members of the Minnesota Orchestra's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Beth Keller-Long is the Vice President of Orchestra Administration, Sam Bergman is a violist in the orchestra, and Yvonne Cheek is a board member. Their committee was formed in 2015 after the orchestra went on a transformative tour to Cuba, and their work has led to impactful change in the organization. We are overjoyed to have them join us today for this conversation. Beth, Sam, and Yvonne, welcome to Orchestrating Change.
1: Welcome, everybody. Uh, It's so lovely. We have three people on our call, well, and us, so five people having a conversation today, which is a little different than what we normally do, so... We're going to have each of you introduce yourself so everyone can get to know who you are a little bit. So um, starting with you, Beth, can you just introduce yourself, say a little bit about who you are, what you do,
2: and why you're on this committee? Sure. Um, So I'm Beth Keller-Long. As uh, Matthew had said, I'm the vice president of orchestra administration at the orchestra, or at the Minnesota Orchestra. And um, I've actually been with the Minnesota Orchestra since 1991, so I am a long-timer at the Minnesota Orchestra, um, I'm the staff lead for our diversity equity inclusion and anti-racism efforts and um, I've been on the committee for um, not from the beginning but from early on and um, I'm really invested in this work awesome Sam what about you uh,
3: so as you said I'm a violist with the orchestra uh, I've been in this orchestra for about 22 years now um, and I uh, I've always been interested in pushing the boundaries of what orchestras do on the stage. Over the years, I've hosted and scripted and created uh, about 40 different shows for this orchestra that that go in all different directions. Um, But one of uh, the things I've always been passionate about has been um, broadening what we do and the mission of. Um, broadening racially, what we are and what we do is is something that I think is incredibly meaningful, and that everyone in classical music, um, you know, we're <laughs> we're hundreds of years overdue yeah. for it. So yeah. um, I'm that uh, this group has come together within this orchestra to to do some of the work that that we've been doing.
1: That's awesome. And you, Yvonne, as the board member here, tell us a little bit about you.
4: I'm uh, in my second year of my second term, uh, which is uh, about, uh, I think four, four years, four years, five years as a board member. And I'm a past chair of the diversity, equity and inclusion committee. And I am currently on the liaison committee and I served in the governance committee in the past. And I consider myself kind of a cheerleader <laughs> to get more people to come to uh, concerts of the orchestra. Especially people of color, um, in addition to being a true leader, uh, an igniter, a connector, an enhancer. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. A few of the roles that I play. <laughs> That's awesome.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So tell us a little bit about how and why your committee was formed.
2: Well, um, you stated a little bit about it. So this was an ad hoc group that came together after our uh, 2015 tour to Cuba. Um, And it was an ad hoc committee, gradually became musicians, staff, and board. And um, I came into the committee at about the same time Yvonne did. Um, We had, uh, there was a meeting that was uh, with some community members, um, had been asked to come as well to just talk about what could the orchestra doing in the community. There was some connections with Roderick Cox that Yvonne will talk about a little bit. Um, And so uh, we started off really looking at like, what are some initiatives we can do there? Bishop Howell uh, was at that meeting and he said, you know, it'd be great to have the Minnesota Orchestra play at Shiloh Temple in North Minneapolis. And I said, hey, I think we could do that. And so he and I talked afterwards and we were like, let's schedule this meeting. Let's look at the calendar. How could this work? And so um, we started off with some initiatives like that, building some relationships. Um, Eventually, the committee became a full board committee, although it's still Hmm. a really collaborative committee of board staff and musicians. That's a really important component of it. And um, leading on lots of work, which I know we'll be talking about as as we go. But I think Yvonne would have some good perspectives to sh- share about that early work and how Roderick and Yvonne were involved and came to to work on on this committee.
0: Really, really quickly. Just tell us who Bishop Howell is and what and where Shiloh don't Temple is. No, and our that. listeners won't either.
2: <laughs> you, don't, you don't know them. OK, oh. Yvonne, you're going to include that,
4: OK? Oh, I'll be happy to include that in my um, remarks about how I got initially involved. When Roderick Cox, who's African-American young conductor, came to the Minnesota Orchestra as assistant conductor maybe five years ago, four years ago, something like that. When I found out that he was here, I called and said, oh, my gosh, um, I need to meet you. Uh, We need to build on your um, um, presence here and get more people of color to come to the orchestra because this is a cause celebrity. (laughs) So. um, Uh, I and a friend, Cindy Garrick, who headed the Jerome Foundation at that time, invited him for lunch, and we, he was thrilled that we asked that question, and uh, we said, and what else can we do for you while you're, uh, you're beginning your first six months or so, and he said, well, I'm doing a concert series um, uh, in January, and I'd love to have more people of color in the auditorium in the uh, orchestra hall than ever before and we thought whoa well that's a big (laughs) uh wish but we'll try to do that and so we took that on and had a series of luncheons in the community um, to see how uh, the african-american community could help the orchestra um, um, be more present in our community and how our community could help support the orchestra to build its audiences And so we had about five lunches or so, and we had one meeting at Minnesota Public Radio um, that had about a hundred people come, and all of this was to build up for his um, series. And we actually succeeded. We did have more people of color in that audience at one time than those audiences. And so this, uh, we also, in the series of lunches that we had, we collected, uh, we asked questions about the orchestra, what it could do differently, what people of color could do differently, where they could connect and so that information was written up and 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 shared with the orchestra and uh i think that was like the maybe the the beginning for the orchestra to really think seriously about what we can do to add to our audience mix so in one of those meetings we went we were invited to the diversity equity inclusion committee that roderick was serving on and that's where beth and i first met and um it was at those that meeting, I invited uh, Bishop Howell, who is uh, um, the pastor of Shallow International Ministries, which is one of the largest churches and very active churches in North Minneapolis. And out of that meeting, uh, he uh, his challenge and invitation was, "Why does the orchestra come to my church?" And we all went, oh, "Why did you come there for a concert in December?" And we went, oh, "Again." And so. Um, people were buzzing and thinking about, well, what can we do with this? And so the orchestra stepped forward. We had a fabulous December concert there Roderick conducted, and that began a long term uh, relationship. The orchestra did a residency in North Minneapolis two years later. And uh, before that, we'd never done a city residency. They'd always been in the state of Minnesota out in the rural area. And so that that ignited people to see what the possibilities were because i think some of these ideas had not bubbled up to be real Um, they were imagined or maybe some were unimagined actually and so um, that um yeah that launched i think that sealed the idea that we need to do something more and we're capable of doing what more than what we've done in the past
2: yeah yeah. i was going to clarify one thing so feels time this shows how time flies Roderick was assistant conductor in 2015, and it's
4: 2022 now. Oh, my oh, seven gosh. Years. That time has passed. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and he's now based in Berlin, where he's been living for two years. So, yeah, that time did fly. Thank you oh for that God. connection. It wow. has passed. passed. That's mm-hmm. awesome.
1: So I know you kind of, uh, on your website, like, the three core goals of this community are listen, respect, collaborate. And I was wondering how those three, I mean, like, those seem very simple, but how does that actually play out in like the goals of what this committee is trying to accomplish?
2: Well, those are those are the c- core um, values of the organization as a whole. Mm. So, so not specific to the DEI committee; they're specific to the Minnesota Orchestra. Um, so, certainly those are those are values that we t- try to incorporate in everything that we do. We have. Uh, adopted, and the board has passed officially back in October, some guiding principles for anti-racist decision, decision making, and those are also rooted in those core values as well, collaborate, listen, respect. Um, so it, it's all very interwoven together, and we certainly try and keep those values in mind as we're as we're doing our work. That's wonderful.
1: And I know, you know, so you you stated from the very beginning, it's staff, board and musicians. Um, and that was really important. Um, so I don't know, maybe Sam, if you want to speak to this musician perspective of being on a committee like this, what does it meant for you as a musician in your orchestra to be a part of this work?
3: Sure. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's actually a relatively tight knit Group of musicians that serve on this committee. Um, So we have we're like most orchestras in that we have a couple of elected committees um, among the musicians that are basically an extension of of our you know presence as a unionized workforce. I'm I'm actually currently the chair of our orchestra committee, which is which is sort of our top committee. And we have an artistic advisory committee that works with management on programming and and other initiatives. Um, We have a tour committee. These are all elected, but then one of the things that's happened in the last decade is that our orchestra has transitioned to a much more collaborative model overall. And so we also now have over a dozen, what we call ad hoc committees, which are basically committees comprising board staff and musicians that tackle a whole range of issues, both inside the workplace and in our sort of more community facing aspects of of our existence as a cultural organization. And the DEI committee is one of those. So the musicians for this are hand chosen by the members of our elected orchestra committee. And we look for musicians who first of all have an interest in the work, um, who secondly have an open mind and a perspective to bring and are also willing to engage in difficult conversations who are not going to retreat into shells and get defensive. Everybody's gotta be ready to participate. Everybody has gotta be ready to be wrong. And um, and and so what we've what we've created over the years is an is an ever evolving, ever rotating, but also very tight knit group of musicians. In addition to the DEI committee meetings that take place with the full roster of board staff and musicians, our musicians group meets on our own um, regularly to just talk through things ourselves and say, you know, what what are the parts that we're worried about right now what are the things we think we need to be focused on where where might we be looking you know from the wrong perspective at one issue or another um it's it it can be a huge amount of work at times and so we also always have to be careful to get musicians who are up for that um but I, i i think we we've got a fantastic range of perspectives um but also you know anytime you have a committee like this it will point up the inherent deficiencies of your own organization. And one of the issues in this orchestra, we do not currently have a single full-time tenure track black musician in the Minnesota orchestra. We have in the past, we currently don't. That's a glaring thing yeah. at the best of times. And especially when you're recruiting people to be on a committee like this, That's something that hits us in the face every day as it properly should. Mm. Um, So I think that's, you know, one one big aspect of choosing musicians for this is is choosing people who are willing to look dead on at not only the broader issues facing the industry, but also the issues facing us in particular and being willing to be very open and honest about those.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: Sam, I just want to follow up a little bit on that. We uh, at the Canton Symphony are in the exact same boat. We do not have a tenured or tenure track musician on our roster who is African American, and this is this is something that we have talked about how could we address this? And uh, we, as the Canton Symphony, we have not been having these conversations nearly as long as you guys have since 2015 at the Minnesota Orchestra. So I'm wondering, what are some of the ideas that have been floated in by, by the committee as a whole or uh, the musicians to address this?
4: Before Sam answers that, and he'll give a, a larger answer to this, but I just want to say that one of the things that we looked at right away was of course what Sam is saying, but when we brought our, um, our consult, cons- uh, consultant, Justin Lang on, he helped us to see that we needed to start with a foundation that got the culture, that got the organization ready to receive people of color as musicians, as administrators. That just going for the numbers first might not be the right route because um, people wouldn't be as welcoming or as ready. Um, and it's so interesting that, um, so, the, so what he suggested was that we look at white privilege, we look at our relationship to white privilege, we look at how we're benefited, we, the larger we, uh, the organization is benefiting from white privilege. And we had a series of workshops that asked that as an, uh, to the organization and to individuals. And some people were very put off by the term, They'd never thought about it and some people uh, recognize it right away and some people recognize it but then didn't know what to do with the fight privilege that they had been enjoying all their lives so um justin lang made it personal and professional and we got to understand that the organization can't change unless the individuals change within the organization because we make up the organization
2: mm-hmm. and so we had
4: a series of workshops for the entire organization, and then some special ones for the musicians that helped us dig deeper and to understand that, you know, we can learn the language, but that's not enough. We need to translate, transform, we need to activate our learnings into everyday um, scenarios that we are um, initiating. And uh, we need to have a lot more cross sectional um, um, conversations so that we're ready to move to the next step so it won't feel so daunting because it's easy to get overwhelmed and paralyzed and that oh my god I want to do something but I have no idea what I could do and so to to build a pathway and to build relationships among these three groups the board the staff and the musicians was an essential part of that wow yeah
3: yeah I think that's I think that's perfectly stated, you know, it's to, to focus only on the numbers on stage without changing the culture would be committing ourselves to failure, right? We, you know, to, to try to change what we look like without addressing why we look like that,
2: Mm.
3: you know, that it's, it would, it's putting the cart before the horse. And so it was hugely important to do a number of things first to, you know, to change the culture as Yvonne says, and we were really fortunate some of the people who volunteered their time for this committee came in with you know some amazing ideas. We had two young staffers um, who actually started. Um, what it was called several things over the years, but basically a learning group that would meet once or twice a month. Um, they, they were these these two dynamic young staffers, Emma Smith and later Hannah Loney, who um, put together just a group of staff and musicians and had
4: the audacity to call it the anti-racist learning group, which which put off some people right away. It's like <laughs> we are calling this some of the language was quite bold for that time for us to step into.
3: Yeah. And, and they, you know, and they basically just said, you know, uh, you've got an hour for lunch between rehearsals, show up, let's all read an article, let's read a book, let's talk about it. Um, Let's, you know, create a safe space for everyone to just, you know, put their own feelings out there. Um, And I think that helped a lot of people sort of get in the issues um but also to get a sense of just how far we had to go as an organization and as an industry um the other you asked specifically about you know what are the things our orchestra has been looking at to actually eventually try to change the racial composition of our orchestra. One of the big things going around the industry right now is a, a document that was put out last year by the National Alliance for Audition Support, which is a subgroup within the Sphinx organization, which of course does incredible work across the industry for Black and Latin uh, classical musicians in particular. And the uh, the National Alliance for Audition Support, or NAS, put out this set of guidelines that was put together by a, a collection of Um, professional orchestra musicians, freelancers, administrators from all over the country, um, basically saying, here are things we think every orchestra should look at and see which of these could apply to making your audition practices and your tenure practices both more inclusive, but also more inviting Mm -hmm. to musicians of color. Because a lot of orchestras still have this mindset, and it's a very 20th century mindset of, All we need to do to get the very best musicians in the world to beat a path to our door is put an ad in the union paper that says we have an opening for a bassoon player. That's all we need. And they'll all come. And the available evidence is that we're missing a lot of the best musicians by doing it that way. You know, we are not necessarily getting all the top players. We're getting all the top players of a certain type. But we're missing a much broader pool. And so this NOS document basically suggests that we look at how we pre-screen for auditions. Maybe we shouldn't pre screen at all. Maybe we should let anyone who wants to come and play for us. Um, how much we use screens. Screens have been a huge part of the audition process for nearly every major orchestra in the country for decades. And they were originally put in place um, in large part to stop the rampant sexism in orchestra auditions, because, you know, men in symphony orchestras in the 20th century were huge fans of saying, you know, they'd be fine with women, except that they can't do the job as well. And magically, as soon as you put a screen between those men and the people auditioning, turns out that's a lot. Um, so, you know, a lot of orchestra musicians have this ingrained memory of that. And so this this feeling that, like, you know, we can't ever let go of screens... Because that's what allowed us to have fair and equitable auditions. Well, you know, NAS is challenging us to say, well, does it always, or are there times when that is actually preventing you from seeing things in a different perspective? Not, they're not demanding that anyone get rid of screens, but it is something that's you know floating out there now. Is let's let's really look at our practices and see which of them are productive and which of them are maybe counterproductive. There's also discussion of. You know, trial weeks. A lot of orchestras use trial weeks now before offering a job more than has been the case in the past. And there are people who will say that is absolutely essential. And there are people who will say that it's actually discriminatory because it takes away some of the anonymity portion and introduces sort of a who do you get along with the best when you meet them for a week. Um, and, you know, and these are fascinating conversations to have. And so we've been having those conversations in house. With all of our musicians, we actually, uh, we already took action on the first few of the NAS guidelines last summer. Our, the musicians of our orchestra voted overwhelmingly to make three big changes to the way that we do auditions. We have a particularly malleable audition process that allows different sections of the orchestra to have slightly different audition practices, because, you know, what works for the French horns may not work for the first violins and vice versa um but one of the you know these things that we changed we basically said none of the sections in our orchestra are going to pre-screen people by resume you know we'll take a look at the resumes to see if anyone is you know professionally do maybe a little bit of a pre-advanced skip whatever but we're not going to tell anyone they can't come anybody is going to be able to play for us at our auditions um and the other changes we made were to recruitment like i said there's been this notion that you know all we got to do is put the ad in the paper and that's all that's needed we know that's not true so now every single one of our audition committees is required to do specific outreach to qualified candidates of color they can be anywhere they can be whoever you want but there needs to be a specific effort made to reach out to people and to say hey um, we want as many great players as we can get at this audition. What can we tell you about our organization? Uh, what questions can we answer? What concerns can we talk about? Um, you know, and so there's there's that element. And then we also have sort of a longer range outreach plan as well that was approved. So we're already down this road to some extent, but there's so much more to talk about just from that one NOS document. And they really they did a great job of crystallizing a lot of the issues facing musicians as we look to you know, evolve our orchestras to something better than what we've been.
1: Wow.
0: Fantastic.
1: Yeah, and I know that um, this, this committee has had great impact on the orchestra as a whole as well. And I was wondering if you three could speak to the impact that this committee has had specifically on programming and the direction that the Minnesota Orchestra has been taking in more recent years.
2: Uh, sure. <clears throat> so um, as we were talking about, you know, it, it sort of this committee came together with maybe more of a grassroots effort and kind of an ad hoc thing. And Sam mentioned the great work that Emma Smith and Hannah Lowney did in putting together this learning group. Um, but uh, we did in 2019, we were able to hire a consultant so that we could bring in a professional Um, to help us with this work, because none of us were experts in this. And so we did um, bring in Justin Lang from Hilembo in summer of 2019 and start working with him. And I can't say enough wonderful things about working with Justin. Really, really have has been transformative for us and how we've approached things. And so um, where, the, where that led was for us to, so we had, as Yvonne mentioned, we, you know, pulled the whole organization together, we started talking about white privilege, and thinking about like what might our goals be as an or- as an organization, and how might we then set up some experiments or some learning projects kind of from this adaptive leadership framework to, to to, do, to uh, try and address those goals. So, so the goal was that we wanted to reduce our reliance on and reproduction of white privilege, and and to do this in order to have more mutually beneficial partnerships with Amelia, and that's an acronym that, that we've been using for African, Middle Eastern, Latin, indigenous, Asian, and Yvonne can talk about that in just a moment, um, but with Amelia individuals, organizations, um, so Justin really helped us start looking at this from a very um, strategic and um, structured way. And we put together these learning projects then. And I think maybe as we keep going, we'll, we'll delve into those a little bit more. Um, but it has affected the whole organization and how we have approached this work. It's been very systematic and um, <clears throat> And we've just finished this series of learning projects and I have evaluated them. And so it's been it's been really instructive. I also wanna make sure though that we acknowledge like we are still learning and figuring all of this out. So, I mean, I think we're going like, yay, here are the things we figured out and like, oh my gosh, there is so much more we have to figure out. So um, I, wanna, I wanna say that as well. Um, so, but I, I know the Amelia thing was kind of an interesting um, discussion and and process where we landed there. I don't know, Yvonne, do you want to kind of... Yeah, yes, I'd I do love to go hear there, more.
4: But before I go there, I just want to add to something that you said about how we, how we began. Um, we've had several transformative mo- moments in this work. I mean, as an organization and as a committee, and I've had a few transformative experiences too. And I just wanted to point out one, one of the early things that Justin had us do uh, was to um, um, meet in small groups that all groups would be um, consist of musicians, um, staff and board members, and to generate ideas that would reduce our reproduction and reliance on racism. And uh, he trained the facilitators of this group. There would be co-facilitators um, that would be one of each of the three groups and the training itself, as well as them um, uh, facilitating these groups. For me, it was the first time I had ever sat in a small group and I had a musician on one side of me and a staff person on the other. And to be engaged in a deep dive conversation, answering that question, what can we do to reduce, was a major um, growth point for me. And I'm thinking for many others, it, it might have been too. And so these I think we may have had eight groups that met and we generated maybe about 90 ideas. I'm not sure how many better, you might have a better number of that, but it was an extraordinary number of fabulous ideas. And then these ideas were um, categorized and um, numbered and categorized. And then we chose which of those we could consolidate. And then we came up with our, I think we had five projects at first and we maybe reduced it to three and just the process of that blended our ideas and our spirits in a way that gave us hope that we could go for it. I think we could we can actually do this. It gave me a sense of possibility that I did not have prior to that. Wow.
0: So you just mentioned you, it, you ended up, out of all these many ideas, you ended up distilling it down to three big ideas. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about these three things you came up with.
2: Yeah, so so like Yvonne said, there was all these ideas generated, and so I put them, <laughs> I was a happy one to work on, like, where can we put these, what could the categories be, you know, um, but we distilled them down into three, and we were trying to be really thoughtful about, like, which areas of the organization would be working on them, making sure that we're involving the whole range of the organization, and also thinking about like the continued learning that needs needed and needs to happen. So one, we, we still refer to them by their numbers. So, so <laughs> learning project number one uh, was a, is, a, is and was about organization-wide anti-racist learning. And so very specific plan around that. Um, learning project number two, and that's one that Sam um, and his colleague Susie Park uh, led on, is about, was focused on the music and musicians. And so it was about increasing our musical, our our musical literacy in terms of Amelia composers. And then learning project number three was focused in our marketing and communications area. And that was about disrupting white privilege in our communications and marketing. Um, So those were the three projects that, that we narrowed in on.
1: Wow. And we've mentioned Amelia a couple of times. And so I'm going to kind of skip forward a little bit and have us uh, kind of narrow in on that. Because the first time I heard this Amelia acronym was when I was at the uh, Women's Symposium in Dallas. And Michelle Burns, (laughs) your executive director, uh, said it on a panel. And it was really, really wonderful. And I talked to her afterwards. And she's the one who uh, introduced me to you all. So um, can you all talk about what this Amelia acronym is. Yvonne's (laughs) ready for it.
4: (laughs) I am, I am. I knew you'd be curious about that. So it was an acronym that we struggled with at first because we thought about using one of the standard uh, ones for indicating people of color, and that's BIPOC, um, black, indigenous, and people of color. But some people were not um, keen on that. I was one of those because I consider myself black, and I also consider myself a person of color. So it felt kind of strange, but you know, it's, it's been in the lexicon for a while. So we looked at we looked at, um, we looked at rather, than, rather than going by skin color, why not go by the global um, source of pe- where people come from? There, and so, and also BIPOC didn't address Asians uh, in a way that we thought honored Asians, make them feel included. So we thought, okay, can we, do we have the right to come up with a new, do we have the right to make this up? I mean, what will people say? Will people catch on? Will it be, will it alienate? Will it, uh, will it be too complex? And um, so after a lot of discussion, we decided, why not? Why not have our own homemade um, term? And so we decided to jump right in that it wasn't too risky. It was somewhat risky, but not too risky. Come up with a uh, do-it-yourself acronym. And so we did it. And uh, we are feeling pretty good about it right now. And we're thinking maybe it'll catch on and others will do it. So African, um, Middle Eastern, um, Latin, Asian, and Indigenous Amelia. Yeah. Oh, did I get it? Did I get the, no, the order wrong? The <laughs> la- just it. the last just two. The last just two. two. I in the LA. Yes, yes, yes. I, I I thought
1: it was really interesting the first time I heard it with Middle Eastern being in there, because I think all of us have seen on forms where it's, you check what race you are, and it's like white, Caucasian, whatever. And under white, it also puts Middle Eastern there. Right. So people who identify as Middle Eastern often have to check the white box, even if that's not necessarily how they identify. So I thought it was really unique that you all pulled that out.
4: And did you also know on a lot of government forums that people who live in Africa above the Sahara are right. white and those who live below the Sahara are black? Right. Yeah. So strange. So that's you know, all of this is hocus pocus in some ways. <laughs> but we we thought that this um this terminology would would help us, you know, it 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 um it lets people know we're doing something new, we're doing something experimental, we're doing something fresh. So I think right now we're pretty pleased with that, <laughs> and we're hoping it will catch on. Yeah,
1: that's really cool. I
4: would I would say, but, but also there's this uncomfortableness, of course,
2: because it, it, we're saying not white, you know, like, so we're categorizing people about with not white, and so right there, how does that fit in with white privilege? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's just like, that basic underlying mm-hmm. problem there. Um, Sam, I know Sam could say more to this. And He's thought about this We knew that quite it bit. wouldn't
4: be a term that would, everybody would embrace. I mean, there are none of these terms that everyone did, but we said, you know, it's imperfect. It's profoundly imperfect, but we're good, imperfect, but we'll go with it at this time. Yeah. Well, Sam, I think the, you want to add to that? I'll, I'll just say that
3: the first document where we ever used the acronym Amelia of course, needed an asterisk and a footnote explaining what it was. But in that footnote, it also included um, a recognition that umbrella terms that just mean non-white are inherently problematic, that they, you know, it's never going to be a fully useful term, because as Yvonne said, you know, race is a construct, and it's constantly changing. And it's, it's not helpful to just say well we want to refer to everyone but this group so let's just have one big term for them Mm -hmm. so in that document it specifically said you know the the effort is going to be for us to avoid using this term Mm -hmm. too often that this is for when we absolutely need an umbrella term where we need to be able to say you know we're referring to musicians who do not come from white european heritage but The idea is not to just let that substitute for talking about people. Right. And so wherever possible, the focus is still meant to be on specific people, their specific identity and heritage. It's not to lump everyone into just a new term for the sake of doing that.
1: Mm -hmm. I remember with our conversation with Hasmin, who's at the Colburn Institute, she pointed out that. When, you know, the term Latinx or Latin, um, oftentimes people who are of Latin distance from another country and they come to America, the first time they're ever lumped into a Latinx population is when they get to America. Because before that point, they were Venezuelan or from Argentina or Puerto Rican. And the first time they ever even maybe hear the term Latinx or Latin is when they come to America and get lumped into that. So yes, Sam, I think that's a really astute observation of whenever possible, just focusing on the individual and the human and the, the the people whose music or works that we're playing.
3: Well, and we had a robust conversation about the term Latinx with some of our Latin musicians who were deeply uncomfortable with it and who came in with a list of reasons saying, look, here's why we don't think that's an appropriate term. There are other obviously Latinx musicians who think that that's absolutely the proper term. And so we tried to grapple with that. And where we eventually came to was using the term Latin within this Amelia acronym. It's not perfect. It's not going to satisfy everyone. But we thought it was important to listen to the musicians in our own house who were saying, here's how we feel about it. Here's how we feel about our own identity.
4: Yeah. And that has been a way that we have um, conducted ourselves, I think, from the beginning is listening to Uh, People who disagree or listen to people who are not on board and listen to people who have a different opinion than um, some of us who are moving very swiftly into this um, um, diversity, equity, um, inclusion zone. Learn from them, respect their opinion and not be defensive, but be open to having them shape our work, our thinking, just as we want them to be open to be shaped. And we have gained from that every time we've done it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yvonne, just going off of that a little bit, has there been much of a backlash among patrons, donors, even musicians to the fact that the Minnesota Orchestra has a DEI committee and is doing this work?
4: I don't know that I would go so far as to call it a backlash. But I think there have been instances of pushback <laughs> okay. and there have been many instances of what if, uh, what if we go too far or what if we alienate donors or what if we alienate subscribers or what if we are. Um, what if we fail at this or what if we don't do it right or so we've listened to all of that and we've tried to address them individually we've our, our um, past uh, chair Margie Brackett and our current chair of the board Joe Green have had individual conversations with many people um, I think um, um, Sam and Susie have had many uh, conversations with individual musicians where a lot of this has come back from um, but I think in general um, you know we're saying we're taking this one step at a time we're going to try something and we'll see if it works. We also want to be sure that we um, don't get paralyzed um, by trying to do too much uh, simultaneously, but at the same time, we don't want to do one thing at a time. We want to do several things in parallel lotion so they reinforce each other and so that we can accelerate our pace. And we also want to keep things threaded together so that the entire organization moves forward. And we don't have one group of those three behind all the other groups. Although we can see, you know, maybe uh, there are different places just because individuals are different places. But I think we have, uh, we had our most concern about donors. And so we actually had meetings with uh, that department and um, had a lot of really rich conversations about that. And I don't believe we saw a drop in our donor revenue last year. I don't believe we did. You might want to address that, Beth. Um, (laughs) I think we're still on track with that. So I think we've been able to defy a lot of the odds um, because of the way, the inclusive way that we have done our inclusive work uh, to not leave anybody behind. Wow.
2: Yeah. I think also, you know, there's people get scared of the unknown. You know, there's fear of the unknown. And so People start thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, if they change who which composers they're playing, we're not going to hear our favorite pieces anymore. Like we're not going to hear Beethoven anymore. Um, And what if we don't like those other pieces? Um, So it's helped to see as our, you know, our programming over the past year and a half um, for people to see, like, there still are those well-loved pieces. And here are all these new pieces as well and um and and it's, it's some that that people really love you know first of all you can't please everyone someone's going to love this piece someone's going to love that piece you know it's going to be all over but but i can remember specifically a meeting i was in with someone who loves the or- the minnesota orchestra and loves orchestras and and he was saying that he did have that he had that worry and he was talking about how much he was loving learning this new repertoire, and I thought, okay, all right, if he's saying that, like, okay, we're on a, we're on a good path here, you know. Dr. Kira Thurman was was here in October and spoke to musicians board and staff, and and she said, there there is like wonderful things out there to enjoy. It's not like eat your vegetables. It's like eat your dessert. Like there's great repertoire out there. And people somehow think because they haven't heard of it before that it's not good repertoire. And there's other reasons they haven't heard of it before. So anyway, that's what I would say about the programming, for example.
4: And we have had concerts in all of our concerts for the past, is it two years now? We've had uh, works by composers of color on all or women on each of them Uh, um, almost 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 all of them
1: wow yeah yeah and and one thing that i've heard from some some people in in conversations that i've had is why why do we have to try so hard to engage diverse populations and bring them into the hall to watch orchestral music if they really are passionate about their own culture's music like why why do we have to try so hard to to get people to come to the orchestra and enjoy what we're doing by programming work by diverse composers if they would just go rather listen to their own culture's music as opposed to orchestral music. Um, and I, I've had that comment given to me a couple of times in that question, and I just want to kind of pose that back to you of why is this so important to be playing all these composers and trying to engage diverse populations? I Maybe, Sam, if you could, as a musician, from your perspective, why is this so important?
3: Yeah, sure. I, You know, it's, I, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to know where to begin with those kinds of questions. Right. Not, not that you're wrong to pose them, because those are exactly the questions that do get asked within this industry when you start looking at decolonizing the canon and also naming our own culpability, our, our complicity as artists in having allowed our, our, you know, what we call our standard repertoire to become as homogenized as it is and to exist in that homogenous white-dominated form for as many centuries as it has. Um, I do think that one part of what you asked about can be dispensed with pretty quickly, and that, that's the question of whether certain racialized populations are simply not interested in classical music. Um, I don't know any Black populations or Latin populations, Asian populations. I know individual people who fit those racial descriptors, and those people like all different kinds of music, just as white people like all different kinds yeah. of music. So. To suggest that we as an artistic discipline don't need to worry about how white we are or how white we present because this music just isn't meant to be of interest to anyone but white people is really reversing the order of things as we know them to have happened, right? What we know about the history of just, for instance, black musicians in music, uh, sorry, black Americans in music is that many of our most beloved performers in this country had classical training, but at some point took a turn into some other genre, not because they lacked interest, but because classical music very clearly lacked interest in them. And in many cases was hostile to them. And, And I think this really, at the risk of Going down a, a longer path, I think this really points up the big lie at the center of classical music, both in the past and today um, and and i'll I'll explain this lie from the perspective of a white European descended musician because that's what I am, and that's that's how I you know experienced it i I think there is a common learning curve that most white classical musicians go through either in school or for some when they're already mid-career. And when we're young and we're beginning to realize that pretty much every piece of music we're being handed to learn is by a dead white European man, um, most of us are given an explanation for that. And there was a time that that explanation was just a pile of straight up racist, sexist nonsense about you know these twenty or so European men being the only people who had ever somehow managed to write great music. Um, these days, you don't hear that version of the big lie so much anymore because you can't really get away with saying. it. People know it's not true, most people. So now, we get a more insidious version of that same lie, and it usually goes something like you know. Look, it was a different time back then. Uh, Women weren't allowed to be full-time professional composers. Black musicians, other musicians of color, they were discriminated against. And it's all very sad. But the simple fact is there just isn't very much classical music from the past by Black composers or Asian composers or Latin composers or women of any race. It's sad, but it just doesn't exist. What are you going to do? Isn't it nice that we live in a more enlightened era now? And the problem with that is that's a more subjective lie in a way but it's still a lie yeah and i said that we white musicians we go through this learning curve and that curve starts when we first realize that we've been sold a bill of goods and that the big lie is in fact still a lie even when it's prettied up with progressive sounding words and talk about how oh people in the past were very discriminatory because the fact is there were composers in past eras who weren't white European men. There were lots of them. Some of them had really impressive careers, you know, big premieres with some of the, the biggest symphony orchestras in the world. And then when they died, their music just stopped being played. It's called the big erasure. Yeah, yeah. and no and no one in music wants to explain it. You know, it's just as if, as if Florence Price just somehow dropped off the face of the earth by chance rather than because there wasn't anyone there in power to advocate for her after she herself was gone. And this is the point of realization at which I find white musicians tend to go down one of two paths. There's the path where you realize that the cultural world that you're inhabiting is far bigger and far broader and more interesting than you ever knew. And you probably get absolutely furious about that, that you've spent most of your life being told that there's only Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms and maybe Copeland for you. When in (laughs) fact, there are universes beyond those men and their work. And if you go down that path, you will find an amazing array of music to tackle. You will also find a hell of a lot of resistance waiting for you from not just other white musicians, but scholars theorists, musicologists, audience members who, you know, they're on the same learning curve that you as a white musician are, but maybe they're in a different place on the curve, or maybe they're in the same place, but they chose to go down the other path. And down that path, it's a lifetime of cognitive dissonance, of inventing just ever more I don't know, fanciful justifications for why things are the way they are and why it's apparently just fine that 95% of the music that finds its way our stages is is by the same carefully selected pool of white European men. So I I know I've been going on for a long time, but the the beginning of your question was about why it's important to broaden the repertoire we play. And my answer is that it's insane not to. You know That unless our literal goal is continued exclusion, we are poorer artistically for having excluded hundreds thousands of musicians and composers from this industry and we have a sample size now this isn't you know this isn't some theory we have a sample size of hundreds of years why would we want to continue on that path knowing what we know now instead of embracing this incredible world of music that already exists and is being created every day today by people who have been systemically, systematically shut out of our closed system. It it makes no sense. So I guess I don't even dignify the question. Why would you not want more music?
4: That And when you know oh, better, man. you have to do better. Yeah. Angela has taught us that a long time yeah. ago. And now we know better and many other organizations are learning better too. So we're at a new place that I hope we can continue continually de-
0: evolve. Yeah. And may, I, I just want to give an example from from our experience this year, coming back from the pandemic and uh, having a full season for the first time in several years. Uh, I work with the Youth Symphony here and Rachel does as well. And we did Florence Price's first symphony on their fall concert. Yeah. And the Youth Symphony parents that are not even concert goers like they don't go to the subscription concerts many of them only come to youth symphony because they have kids who are in it and they would not go hear an orchestra ever otherwise parents universally adored Florence Price's first symphony Oh
1: yeah Yeah.
0: universally it was everybody was like wow I I can't believe this has been out there and we never knew it it was amazing
4: yeah we've been denying ourselves <laughs> access to a lot of fabulous yeah. works, so I'm so glad you said that yeah I, and with American
3: composers, I think there's yeah. also that where with with Florence Price's work in particular, you can see the different parts of it that different people are gravitating to because in the case of that particular symphony, the people who are really steeped in European classical music, they tend to gravitate to the first movement because it's the one that sounds yeah. the most like people who come. You know, from a church music background, they love the second movement because that is pure (laughs) church music happening in that slow movement. And then everyone else loves the Juba dance because it's just up-tempo, it's fun, it gets you so you, you can watch in real time as different chunks of the audience engage with different parts. And that's something about, you know, performing music by composers of our own time and also of the recent past that, you know, you don't make that same visceral connection with someone who wrote music 300 years ago in a country thousands of miles away. It's just different. Yeah, know?
0: Absolutely. And
1: I just say, I'm like, what a great answer. I'm so glad that you, you've thought about this and can, you know, gave that answer that we have. And as we're kind of like think, finishing out this, this conversation and thinking about all of, all of this amazing work that you have been doing and that a lot of orchestras are having to come to grips with is this idea of what are the changes that, other orchestras should be doing and what advice would you have for other orchestras that are embarking on this work of becoming more inclusive and having this inclusive process for bringing more voices yeah. into what we do?
4: I'd like to start um, and just say, you know, one of the questions that you love ending these broadcasts with is how do you orchestrate change or and yeah. you just ask it in another way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, um, I think part of the answer is creating new intersections for people to work at. Uh, at the Minnesota Orchestra, we now have departments meeting together talking about these issues for the first time. Okay. We have musicians and and uh, staff and, uh, and uh, board meeting together for the first time talking about these. So creating these new intersections and also recognizing and making a pathway for people who have a spark. Um, to do this work who can spark others and also who have t- octopus tentacles. And I would say that Beth Keller-Long is one of those people. Um, she has, and she's been our inside driver for this. I mean, she knows and is highly respected by the orchestra, the board and staff. And for her to bring all of these ideas and plant ideas, work behind the scene to make things happen when there's smoke, uh, you know, before it's a fire to um, deal with it. To have a person of that caliber to be the shaper and the big ears that can integrate is a critical, is a critical role. And the other thing is to recognize what kind of things you need to be bold about doing and what kind of things you could just do quietly and they just happen, and you don't have to really ask a lot of permission, and you they just they are just the right thing to do, and you just do it and it shows up. And, Nobody squeaks about it, and to also it's important too to have our to have your board chair, your CEO, our CEO uh, Michelle Burns, to be fully on board with this and to give you enough rain to run without having to have this type of uh, project micromanaged. But to see her grow, to see Beth grow, to see Sam and Susie grow, to see me grow, and people like me grow—all in the process that. Um, give us all another, um, at least on what the possibilities are, and make us proud in where we've come from. Yeah,
3: I think that's, I think that's absolutely the key. It's that institutional support that has to be there, and any orchestra that is going to undertake, you know, something as complex and difficult as confronting our own past and our own present, You cannot expect musicians and staff members to jump into that work if they feel that they're going to be putting their own careers at risk by doing so. So if you're expecting your musicians of color to just jump in and do the heavy lifting without any sort of assurance that they're going to be protected, taken care of, it's not going to work. You know, anybody who engages in this work is going to encounter pushback, is going to, you know, be in some uncomfortable situations. And if they don't feel like someone in authority has their back, it's not going to work. And that's been key to this organization's work is knowing that the board and the management of this orchestra have said this work is a priority here and it is going to be a priority here. It's not going to change tomorrow. It's not a fad it is part of our, going to be part of our organizational identity. And that doesn't solve the problem of people needing support. You still need to be checking in constantly every day with the people you work with on a committee like this to make sure everybody is in an okay place. But without that institutional support, it's going to fail. So you've got to start at the top.
4: And all of our work over the past two years has been, all of it, all of the significant pieces of it have been embedded in the strategic plan for the orchestra for the next three years. I mean, yeah. that was a giant leap forward. Yeah. There's not a separate anti-racist plan, a separate DEI plan. It's a part of the integrated organizational plan. Wow. And it's obvious. Yeah.
2: Um, Some things I would say I've been thinking about this sort of mix of grassroots effort, which happened with with the Minnesota Orchestra, but also the the need to bring in a professional to really work with us to look at this process in a very strategic way. And and um, that is where things really shifted for us um, was when we started working with Justin Lang at Halembo. And so I just really I'm so grateful that Justin said yes when when I called him and grateful to the Sphinx organization for um, that's when I first met. Justin was at a Sphinx convening. Um, So I guess my advice would be to have a professional to help help with with the work. And
3: And make sure the professional who's not just going to tell you what you want to hear either. Make sure it's somebody like Justin Lang who is going to challenge you. And who is not going to let you get away with just looking like you're doing something.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
4: Absolutely.
1: So I wanted to take a moment to thank all of you um, for kind of answering the question of orchestrate. Like we always ask like, what, what do we need to do to orchestrate change? And I kind of feel like this entire episode is that is answering that question. So I just want to thank you all so, so much for being with us today and for sharing this perspective and um, for having such a, just a, truly awesome conversation i feel um i i I, I, I just feel really invigorated and i'm very grateful
0: i can't believe that uh almost an hour and 15 minutes has passed here it just has totally flown by so
1: so thank you all so much for being a part of this it has
0: been an absolute honor (laughs) to talk with all three of you today thank you so much for the time that you've given us
2: yeah thank you and thank you for doing this podcast I think it's just really exciting what creativity has come out of the pandemic. And this podcast is one of those things. So thank you. Thank you for that.
0: Beth Keller-Long, Sam Bergman, and Yvonne Cheek from the Minnesota Orchestra's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee.
1: Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra.
0: Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams.
1: Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media.
0: Thank you for listening and see you next time.